What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Hey, everyone. We're taking a break today for the U.S. holiday. So here's one of our favorite episodes from the Big Take archives. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back tomorrow with a new Big Take. Hey, Vicky, I am looking for a good new show to watch. What should I watch? Oh, uh, Bad Sisters. Just finished that. It is awesome. I went to try and find it. It's on Apple TV. Apple TV Plus. Apple TV Plus, right? Everything has to be plus, which means you're going to pay. And I try to log in because I have Apple TV. Apparently, I thought I did, but I can't find my login. And I had to reset my whole Apple password just to watch this show. So I just kind of gave up. From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Each weekday, we dig into one important story. And today, we're going to talk about why TV is better than ever, and yet it is somehow more annoying than ever. Remember when everyone loved to complain how there were 150 channels on TV and nothing good to watch? Well, it's pretty hard to say that now. There are so many good shows being made. And instead, our new complaint is what a pain in the neck it can be to try to watch all those great shows. They're spread across all these streaming services, and most of them want a monthly payment for the privilege of watching them. The Big Take podcast team here in the U.S. actually wound up griping about this very thing when we were brainstorming about this episode. So we decided, what the heck? Let's turn on the mics. I have Hulu because I got a beta version forever ago that was supposed to be cheaper than getting cable TV, and I'm still paying that. And now they have upped the price as it went from maybe 50 bucks a month. Now it's like 85 so I'm basically paying cable again. Yeah, I'm watching HBO Max, but I will come clean. I am on my parents' plan. Ooh. So thanks, Ma and Pa. And my dad's an IT security guy, so... He's also texting all of the passwords in three different chats. So the username isn't matched with the password. So, yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure both my daughters are on my Netflix. And now Netflix says they're going to be cracking down on, um, you know, sharing outside the house. So that may end real soon. Yeah. And I have a case where I used to share a Netflix password with somebody, a former roommate. And at some point, I just couldn't get into Netflix. But I felt like too hesitant to be like, hey, I've been bumming your Netflix for the last six to eight years. Um, could I continue bumming your Netflix from you? Okay, Mo, what is your tale of woe when it comes to TV? Well, my sorrow came when Quibi was kicked off. <laughs> Quibi? You're the person who watched Quibi. I was the one. I had it. I loved it. Uh, yeah. My favorite movie for the, the youngest Hemsworth. He was in The Most Dangerous Game. I don't know his first name, but he was in that. Uh, that was the very first movie Quibi put on, uh, and it was fantastic. It was in 10-minute segments. It was great. Uh, but yeah, after that, I was trying to get into some other content, but 
Uh, it's just quite So what boring. are you watching now? What services do you have? Um, I have them all. I have HBO, Showtime. I have Hulu, Apple Plus. Oh, my God. I've got bill. I have Paramount, but since Big Brother is over, I'm going to delete Paramount for a while and wait till Big Brother comes back. <laughs> I have a lot. I do. I do. It's ridiculous. Okay, Michael. Yes. What are you watching? And where? Do you even know? Yeah, it's got to be House of the Dragon on HBO Max. House of the Dragon. Okay, so you're rolling old school with HBO. Yes, but uh, it's a fight every single time because as much as I love the content on HBO Max, uh, it's my least favorite app. I think its navigation makes no sense. And uh, I just feel like an app that has that much money behind it um, would be uh, easier to use. Okay, so how many people are subscribed to services that you just don't ever use, but you just can't bring yourself to go through the hassle of trying to cancel it? I have them build on different devices with different things. So I have Showtime build as part of my Hulu package, and I have HBO. So there's really no way, unless you really want to take half your Sunday, to track what you're paying where and how much. That's how they get you. I have one or two that I subscribe to and share, a number of which I will not disclose. Right, because you don't want the cable police coming at you, or the, I guess, the streaming police, it would be called. Exactly, exactly. And when they become better experiences, maybe I will subscribe to them all myself. Prime was the one nice thing. Prime was nice because we had it anyway, because my husband is an avid book collector. The TV is great, but you still have to pay for movies on top of it. So I watched You've Got Mail because, you know, it's fall in New York. And what else are you going to do besides, like, want to pay a sharpened pencils? I, wow. I will own up to it. Rebecca is coming clean. I'm coming clean about parental accounts and Meg Ryan. So I've already seen You've Got Mail God knows how many times. And I was like, what's another Meg Ryan movie that I haven't seen? And there's one called French Kiss. I can't figure out where it is. I finally find it on Amazon. And I click it and I feel victorious for all of about a half a second because it's not available in my region. And I don't even know what that means. Where is Blockbuster when you need it? Can't you just rent uh, it and they send it to you in the mail? <laughs> yeah. Remember how Netflix I gotta started? Say, I'm dating I myself. I do not miss those days standing no. in front of that wall of videotapes and you can't find anything. <laughs> no. I don't know. I thought it smelled nice. It did have a nice smell. Yeah, they had the popcorn up front. This little radio production was brought to you by the U.S.-based producers of the Big Take podcast empire. Mo Barrow. Michael Falero. Rebecca Chasson. Sam Gebauer, Vicky Vergolina. How did we get to this place? When we come back, my colleague Felix Gillette is going to answer that question. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm here with my colleague, Felix Gillette. He covers media for Bloomberg, and he is also the co-author of the upcoming book, It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. Let me just ask you, you know, we all hated the cable companies, and yet you could kind of find all the shows. 
And now we have better shows than ever before. And yet trying to remember where everything is, is maddening and paying for all these services is maddening. Yeah. I think that we're now in this weird phase where there's actually nostalgia coming for the cable bundle. Forever, people were complaining, oh, I just wish we could just get all these channels a la carte. Wouldn't that be great? Part of the reason I wanted to write a book about HBO was this whole era of home entertainment. For the past 40 years, the cable satellite era was coming to an end. How do you make that transition to this new era of streaming? For a long time, it was basically Netflix just completely was dominating the streaming space, right? And yeah, this proliferation of services that's happened in the past two years, in some ways, like you said, is amazing for consumers. There's just so much incredible programming out there. But it also is kind of confusing. Where do you watch this stuff? You know, do you have the subscription? Do you remember your passcode? But in your book, you kind of take us back to the beginning of how we got here. Like, mm -hmm. why? And the seeds of it seem to be in HBO kind of realizing the future, but Netflix as the new player looking at the big dominant HBO saying, we are going to overtake them. Yeah, they're such big rivals now. It's fun to think back that for a while, HBO and Netflix were really copacetic partners um, you know, in the DVD era, when Netflix was a service that you went on the internet and you, you know, looked at your queue and you browsed all these different options and they would send you the DVDs by mail. Um, and during that era, Netflix bought a ton of DVDs from HBO because people wanted to watch The Sopranos. People wanted to watch The Wire. People wanted to watch Six Feet Under. They wanted to binge them on DVD. They wanted to get and they would get them through Netflix. And so Netflix was a great customer for HBO. All the shows you just named, they were all HBO. They were the place to go outside the Hollywood system. We didn't have all these independent content creators yet. It was kind of, HBO was the Goliath. When you saw that, that staticky screen and you heard that signature intro sound that they played, that sort of... You, like, knew you were in for something good. Yeah. And then there's this amazing transition where, you know, uh, Netflix decides, you know what? There's this new technology. We can send programming right into people's homes via streaming. You can click a button. Your show will start playing. You don't have to wait for the DVDs to come in the mail. And they launch a streaming service. And what are they going to put on there? Well, one thing they really wanted was for the streaming service was those HBO shows because they saw it in the data from the DVDs. And HBO, the executive said, you know what? We're not interested in, in letting you uh, have our licensed content for this new service. During that process, it sort of started to dawn on the folks at Netflix that, you know what? It's really just a matter of time somewhere in the future where all of these big studios and big brands, they're all going to decide, you know what? We want our own streaming services. We want to go directly to the customer. We're going to claw back our stuff. And it really dawned on Netflix executives that they were going to have to start making their own original programming. They thought, well, you know, we'll have a couple years before we're going to have to start doing this. And 
really within a couple months, they saw this opportunity to license a new show that was being shopped around called House of Cards. And there's this great moment where basically Netflix swoops in and makes this huge offer. And it was like more than anyone had ever offered for a show. Had ever paid for something that hadn't been seen before. We're going to guarantee two full seasons. Just they offered $100 million for these two seasons of House of Cards. Um, and it actually ended up being a great bet by Netflix. I mean, people were astounded at the time. How could they offer that much? They're overpaying. It's such a, what are they doing? And so now you have this new player on the scene and they have their own kind of signature look and sound that's immediately recognizable. Yeah. And, you know, House of Cards ended up being a very seminal show for Netflix because it really put them on the map and established themselves as like, we're going to be a player in original programming in prestige drama, the most expensive genre there is. And it was just kind of a fascinating moment. And that was really the start of this rivalry, HBO Max, Netflix. And what they anticipated did happen just in the past couple of years. Then you had the launch of Disney+, Plus. you had the launch of HBO Max, you now have Paramount+, Plus. you have Apple+, doing their own original streaming. Um, fall of 2022, I think, is this incredible moment, which I like to think of as kind of the blockbuster moment in streaming entertainment, because you have Amazon Prime rolling out their Lord of the Rings series. You know, they paid $250 million for the rights to make a TV series, and they're going to end up spending over a billion dollars on this by the time they roll out four or five seasons. Uh, at the same time, HBO Max has rolled out The House of the Dragon, which is this hugely expensive series. Netflix has uh, The Sandman, which is also a big, expensive sci-fi series. Disney Plus has She-Hulk. So all these really big, expensive uh, programming landing on these streaming services and at the same time, all of these services are under enormous pressure to try and start cutting their losses. What is, like, what's the economics of this? Are they actually making money off of these? Well, for a long time, I think Netflix benefited from kind of the, you know, the dominant paradigm in tech investing, which was like Wall Street loved to invest in businesses that were losing money as long as they were gaining scale, just gain customers. You can charge below market rates for the product, but you have to eat up market share. We just want you growth, 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 growth. And Netflix benefited from that for a long time because they could always spend and spend and spend and keep increasing how much they were spending on things. And really this year is the first time where all of a sudden, um, because of all this new competition from these other streaming services, Netflix stopped growing. They actually lost customers this year uh, for the first time in forever. And Wall Street is suddenly like, wait, if it's not, if you're not growing, if you're not going to have like huge growth, we're going to start looking at your margins a little bit more. We're going to start looking at how much you're spending. So Felix, you mentioned these companies trying to stem their losses. They're making really expensive shows. Can they actually pay for them or is it is the model that we just have to keep paying subscriptions to each ones to try to support all of this. I think that's there's a lot of pressure. And right now, 
a lot of that money that goes into the streaming services to pay for these huge shows is coming from those legacy cable channels. So, you know, Disney still has the Disney Channel. And even if less and less people are watching those cable channels, that's where the money is still coming from. But obviously, that era is dimming. They're going to need to figure out how to pay for all this stuff. One is that the you know, your subscriptions for all these services are going to go up, right? They're already going up. And I think also at some point, we're just going to see more consolidation. When you say consolidate, mm-hmm. do you mean that the bigger ones are going to swallow the smaller ones or that they're going to reconstitute the cable bundle just as a streaming bundle under one price and then we just have cable again without the cable? I think it'll be both. I mean, I think in the short term, you're already seeing bundling happening. You know, in order to have enough customers, they need to have less services in the marketplace. So it seems like what we're looking at is a future where we get a lot of great shows um, and maybe we're paying one price, but we're still not all that happy about it. Yeah. And I also wonder what's going to happen. I mean, the trend that we've seen in movie theaters for the past, you know, 15, 20 years has been this move towards blockbuster movies, right? The Marvel Cinematic Universe is kind of the what everybody wants. But as, you know, movie theaters have moved more and more towards blockbusters, there's been this simultaneous process where, you know, less independent films get made. Middle range projects don't get uh, made as much. And I'm curious, it'll be interesting to see if a similar um, dynamic plays out in streaming too. Felix, it looks like one way that the services are trying to capture more revenue is cracking down on password sharing. We've seen that from Netflix and other services. Uh, Do you think that we're going to start to see more ways where they're going to try and squeeze more money out of each subscription? Yeah, I think that for a long time, they were pretty lenient. They didn't really worry too much about it. At this point, I think the pressure is ramping up to really monetize every single person that's using the service. And that does mean making sure that if you're watching it, you're paying for it. And simultaneously, the other way that Netflix is dealing with all this is they've announced, you know, we're going to launch a uh, advertising on the service on the platform for the first time. That will allow them to offer a less expensive Netflix. You know, instead of paying $15 a month, let's say you'll pay $7 a month, and you'll see some ads. Um, And broadcast television, which was advertising-supported and commercial-supported, there are always limits on what you could do artistically on television because advertisers would get nervous about, you know, uh, violence, moral complexity, um, you know, uh, stories about addiction. They didn't want stories about prison. There were all sorts of things you couldn't do on broadcast television. If you moved it to a format that was advertising-free, suddenly there was a lot more creative freedom. And that led to this huge, um, you know, revolution in the art of television that happened on HBO. Um, And it'll be interesting now to see almost the reverse process as a service like Netflix that has also operated in this ad-free, commercial-free environment for you know, it's 25 years of existence, suddenly they're going to have advertisements. Well, they're also going to have sponsors looking over their shoulders and what that'll do to the programming, we'll have to see. Felix, thanks so much for being here and good luck with the book. Wes, thank you so much. 
When we come back, I talk to my colleague, Lucas Shaw, and he's going to tell us what this all means for which shows get made and which ones don't. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The following movie is rated R. All right, I'm here with my colleague, Lucas Shaw. Lucas covers the entertainment business for Bloomberg. And one thing I kind of want to ask you as somebody who really watches this close up is, have all these new streaming services had a big effect on the kinds of shows that are being produced? The biggest impact that they've had has been on the the volume of shows being made and on the money going into every show. So, you know, if you had a certain number of shows being made on broadcast, let's call it 150 a year, then cable comes in after the success of HBO, layers on another 150, we get to 300 shows a year, then Netflix comes in. Now we're at more than 500 shows just scripted being made every year. You add hundreds of unscripted to say nothing of news or sports it's a good thing for a lot of creative people because it just means that there's more buyers, more opportunities. But it also means, I think, that less care tends to go into every single show. Um, the the other upside, if you're a creative person, and to some extent, if you're you're someone at home, is that a lot of these companies are spending more per episode, at least on the biggest show. And so the quality of what you're seeing on TV looks more and more like film uh, than it might have before. That must mean that the kind of middle of the pack and the kind of lower end of the tier really aren't getting um, much of an audience at all. You have a lot of programs where you you have to wonder who is watching them. I mean, look, I cover the the business of of entertainment for a living. I watch a fair amount of television, although uh, I, I at least hope I have other interests. And there will be so many shows that come and go that I've never heard of. So what happens to those shows? You know, on network TV, the shows would get kind of canceled if they didn't perform because there were only a few networks and those slots were really, really precious. Now that you have so many of them, so many slots, so much time to fill, do shows live on forever? So the the good news if you're a creator or a fan of a show is that most streaming services will commit to a, a season. And if there's big talent involved, they'll commit to two um, and so shows do last or the bad shows last a little bit longer. The, the counter to that is that the good shows don't last as long or don't stay on forever. I mean, you look, you know, across the board on TV and there'll be a law and order show that's on for 20 seasons or Grey's Anatomy is now in its 18th or 19th. I forget which season. There's no show like that that's lasted that long in streaming. Now, some of that, of course, is because streaming is newer. But but by and large, Netflix will cancel its biggest or end its biggest hits after five or six seasons. I think Grace and Frankie, the show with uh, Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin is the longest running Netflix original at like seven or eight seasons. So what's the biggest change um, from the old days when, you know, it was was broadcast TV or kind of nothing else till now in the way 
shows are kind of created and, and the marketplace for different kinds of shows? The process has traditionally been and still is at a lot of places that you, you sell a, a script or a series of scripts for a show and then you develop it and then you make the pilot, that first episode. And then based on that pilot, they decide if they want to continue. And if they choose to continue, then they'll usually pick it up for a season and then they'll make that season and then it'll kind of continue or not. Netflix has not historically believed in pilots and a lot of streaming services. Amazon is similar in this where it'll just pick up a season. And that sort of gets back to what we were talking about before with kind of even the bad shows will last a little bit longer. And, and part of that is because they're not a, they're choosing not to make a pilot up front because that is seen as inefficient. One thing that we are seeing is a lot more diversity in the kind of shows that that are shown on TV. I, yes and no. You know, I think when you if you see an increase in the, the volume being made, that does create more opportunities. And and as a result of various social movements over the last few years, there's been greater efforts on the part of all these companies to uh, make shows written by, created by, directed by, starring both women and and people of color. So I think the numbers have generally moved in the right direction. They're not where most folks would like to see them, but they have uh, they have improved. The the one area that hasn't really changed uh, all that much is the executive suites, where almost all these companies are are still run by white men. Kind of the companion to that that I would say is there has been this globalization of media and entertainment. Um, and so I'm in the middle right now of watching uh, a, a Korean drama. Now, part of that's because I'm working on a story about a, a Korean production company, but you've seen a surge in viewership and interest in international television, most of which fe- features people who, who don't look like us. If you're someone with an idea, it is still possible to kind of come from the outside and assume, especially if you have an agent or a manager and try to sell it to a studio, try to sell it to a network, you'll see bidding wars for, you know, unattached projects. Uh, But by and large, most writers or producers uh, of any renown have an overall deal at a studio, which gives that studio, whether it's Sony or Warner Brothers or Disney uh, or, or Netflix, the, the first right to make whatever idea or project that they have. Oftentimes, that person is also attached in some way to a TV network or streaming service, in large part because most of the TV studios are now owned by companies that also have a network or service, and they're trying to funnel all the best ideas from their studio to the service. Disney is probably the, the ultimate example of this, where pretty much anything you see on Disney Plus or Hulu has come from one of Disney's TV studios. Uh, Lucas, uh, Felix had also talked about this kind of blockbuster phenomenon starting to take hold more and more in the streaming television realm too, where they're really looking for big, big hits. Um, How has that affected, you know, just your sort of moderate, normal television show that isn't a, a monster hit? Well, I think there's there's some concern among the average writer writer director writer producer that streaming is going to resemble the movie business a little bit more. There was um, sort of an outpouring of of creativity or a willingness to take risks on projects because when Netflix or Amazon started, 
they were relatively unknown. People didn't know what a show for them should look like. And so they had to they had to take bigger risks to get shows made. They, that either meant financially, so Netflix committing to, you know, two seasons of House of Cards and $100 million, or betting on a kind of a relatively unproven talent uh, or an idea that was, you know, outside the box. And I think this led to a lot of really great and interesting television in the early phases of streaming that has continued since then. Uh, what you're seeing now is a lot of these networks get more and more conservative uh, because part of it is they're bigger, right? So they're trying to find the shows that can appeal to as many different people as possible. I think after Netflix had a big hit like Bridgerton, you know, that which was sort of like the type of show that you would have seen on a broadcast network instead of the type of show you'd seen on you'd see on HBO, it wanted more shows like that. When it has a Squid Game, which is, you know, this unprecedented global hit, it wants more shows like that. The tricky part, of course, is that the biggest hits are always surprises. Nobody ever sees them coming. And so you get conservative and try to plan for the big hit. You might actually be likely to miss whatever that next great show is because you're you're looking for something that resembles something you had before instead of looking for something that nobody's ever seen before. Are you optimistic about the kinds of shows we're all going to get to watch? I'm, I'm a little bit torn. Uh, on the one hand, I think there's been too much television made over the last few years, and some of the quality filters have have gone away um, because you have creative executives, these companies who are overseeing too many different projects. And I, I do think that some brilliance comes out of limiting yourself. And so if we're entering an era of greater fiscal responsibility, as weird as it sounds, that might be kind of good. Um, because it'll force people to be more selective about what they make. On the other hand, you know, it does feel like a lot of these companies are going to get safer and safer. Streaming will feel a little bit more like broadcast. It'll feel a little bit less fun. But there's more money and energy going into television than ever before. On a more optimistic note, there's going to be more and more emphasis on overseas territories, which means you'll see more and more investment in storytelling from other parts of the world. And that's without question been one of my favorite parts uh, of kind of the, the streaming revolution in Hollywood is that you now can watch shows from Japan, South Korea, France, Brazil, Mexico with relative ease. Lucas Shaw, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Wes. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take, the daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Read today's story and subscribe to our daily newsletter at Bloomberg.com slash Big Take. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with questions or comments to Big Take at Bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Vergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producer is Rebecca Chasson. And associate producer is Sam DeBauer. Rafael Amsili is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.